0: It's a fun morning to be here because we're going to talk a little bit about church planting, but we're going to do it through the passage that we're looking at today. If you didn't grab one of these on the way in, be sure to grab one on the way out. It's just a little bit of a brochure that explains the network that we're in in Acts 29. It's our primary network, our primary affiliation. And uh, just kind of wanted to take a second to recognize what God is doing through our network. We waited to do church planting Sunday this week, Officially, it was two weeks ago. So the rest of the network, 700 whatever churches, they did this two weeks ago. We hit pause on purpose because today we get to meet a church in the church of Antioch, which is the greatest church planting church in the New Testament and the greatest sending church. We thought it'd be more appropriate to talk about it a little bit today. Um, We began as an Acts 29 church we applied for Legacy to be admitted back in 2010 before we even moved here. So when we were still in Florida, we applied to Acts 29 and went through their process um, of assessment and being onboarded into the network. And when we came, we planted, and about five or six years later, we planted another Acts 29 church, which is Citizens right across the county. And we did this because we're resolved that church planting is the most effective way of changing a city. Mathematically, we, we see agreement in that. I mean, basically, if you're under the age of 25, the majority of salvations happen on the college campus. right? That's irrefutable at this point. Above the age of 25, however, you're gonna see it within the context of church plants. Your average church plant, your average healthy church plant can see as many as 100 salvations in the first 15 to 20 years. It's the fastest way to change a city. Um, so we're committed to do this. And we would love to plant a church every five to six years or so. And if we did, and every church we planted, planted five or six churches, every, or a church every five or six years, which would mean the churches that we plant themselves are church planting church plants. If we did that, then by 2040, we'd have over 15 churches that started with our living room, right? And there's power in that. Mathematically, there's power in it. This is why 10% of all of your financial partnership is reserved for church planting. 10% of all of your dollars go straight to church planting in its various shapes. So it might look like revitalization, replanting, a raw church plant, cooperative church planting. It takes different shapes. I also spend about 10% of my time, my hours working with church planters. Whether we're outside of Acts 29 here locally in Knoxville Whether it's Acts 29, you know, we have purview over about five or six churches in our area. I work with those pastors and then some globally within a very specific area of coaching. And as a church, we're always discussing how we're going to plant the next church plant. Because if we do another 10 of these, easily they're all going to look different. We'll make totally new mistakes every time we do it, we'll have different strategies, it'll feel different as we send them. So we have conversations. What should it look like? Should we pay for a church planting resident to come in or should we require them to raise their own money? If we send, how big of a team do we send? How big do we need to be before we send? Where do we send to? How far outside of the county do we send? Do we send inside the county? There's all kinds of questions and we work through this as a pastoral team because in doing something like this, our hope is that we would look a little bit like this church in Antioch that we're gonna to see today. A church you would love, by the way. It's a healthy church. It's a healthy church. It's full of courageous and obedient people. I think it lacks superstars, however, in the way that you and I would think about a superstar. It's just full of normal people. I suspect everyone looked a little bit normal. Antioch was a really big city back then. It's probably the third or fourth biggest in the world back then. Um, probably about to say the size of Las Vegas today, right? About 600 to 700,000 people. Oddly, you know, it's the same size as Las Vegas, but it was also known for its immorality. It was known for its pervasive sins, so it probably looked a little bit like Las Vegas. This was a church, however, that started very unorthodox in shape, and that's what I love so much. That's what I'm a big fan of. But the big question is, why do you care, right? I mean, what do you care? What, it already sounds like a message about other people doing things in another place a long time ago, right? Why, I mean, you all come in here with your own issues, maybe hoping to get a little bit of help. You probably have some floating dilemmas that you don't really know how to fix, and, and maybe when you got up this morning and got ready and came in here, there was a little bit of an undercurrent of, I hope I get some help on my thing. This doesn't look like that's going to do it, right? How does a healthy 2,000-year-old church have anything to do with you? This is important when we build sermons, by the way. As a, as a team of preachers that we have built here, we always want to not only answer questions that you carry with you, but we want you to understand that in the first few minutes that we're going to try to solve a puzzle that you've never been able to solve. Not by showing you that the gospel is relevant, like showing, but to showing you how it's always been relevant. Not just as a story to save somebody, but as a story to sustain you all through life. Antioch changing the world, it might not seem like it's gonna answer any of your dilemmas, but it really does. The big question it's going to answer that you did carry in here today is will my life matter? Will it matter or will I be forgotten when time keeps moving forward? Because just like you, I've had friends that have died. I've had family that has died. I've had people who have been important in my life that shaped me pass on and over time, the memory of them starts to fade, right? I don't consider them less affectionately. I just consider them less often. The details of who they were start to fade. How they looked, the way their voice sounded, right? Myth starts to kind of take history over. Every once in a while, you'll see a picture of that person that you loved, and there'll be a piece of the picture that reminds you of who they are. Smells come back, memories come back, but they were lost until you saw that picture. Kind of just back in the back of your hard drive until they were called forth. We're all like this. You know this. Time begins to cover us up when we have moved on. And here's the thing, and this is the car just the harsh reality for all of us. The world won't slow down for a single second. People died in Knoxville, Tennessee yesterday, probably more than a few, and it didn't slow you down at all. You went about your stuff, right? You, you did what you normally do. The stock market is going to keep going. College football is still on its way, right? Life goes on. Now, before Jesus rescued me, I had a very intense fear of dying and then being forgotten of history covering me up I I struggled with that I feared disappearing until eventually I just ended up as like a block or a circle on ancestry.com linking one generation to the next that no one even really knew the story they just see a first a middle and a last name maybe just an obituary that shoved in a shoebox somewhere it's a big fear I had it's a big fear not just that i was going to die but that the world would take no time out even after all i've given to it after all i've done after all i've built all the all the things that i've seen and experienced it's just not going to care and you probably know this to be true about your own life i mean if you have ever met your great great grandmother some of you have not. Some of you have. I, I have very small memories of my great-great-grandmother. I remember the house, the way it smelled. I don't remember what her voice sounded like. I don't know anything about her story at all, right? My kids don't know her at all. Just like my great-great-great-grandkids aren't going to know or remember me. Mathematically, I will be totally forgotten in under 60 years. Right? Think about it. You will too. And this used to really bother me. Really bother me. Does this sound depressing yet? Have I depressed everybody in the room? Does anything we do really matter? Or as it says in Ecclesiastes, is just life banging into each other under this harsh sun? Is it just vanity? Right? You see, this passage is going to help us because the quick answer is yes, your life radically matters and yes, you will be forgotten. And this is fantastic. And it gives meaning, and it gives purpose. We have eyes to see it. That God's family, as we're going to see, is full of anonymous heroes and obscure heroic ministry. Back when we first moved here, I wanted to get this tattoo. I don't have any tattoos. I'd always wanted a tattoo. And I talked about getting a tattoo. My wife just got tired of listening to me talk about it. So she finally forked over the cash as a birthday gift. It was a lot of money, plenty to get a tattoo. And I was gonna plant it right here on my ribs before I knew that this was like the most painful place to get a tattoo. Then I slowed down, right? (laughs) I wanted to really know, do I really want this tattoo? I ended up spending the money on like a bike part or something like that. But, But what the tattoo was going to say, It was going to be a banner, probably a skull or something like that. I have no idea. But I know that there was going to be a quote. And the quote was, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Which is straight out of Count Zinzendorf, Nicholas Zinzendorf, who was a Moravian out of Germany, is a real missionary. And when I first discovered this quote, I found great comfort in it. To preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I found comfort knowing that God did not call me to be glorious, but to hide in the shadow of his glory, to find a great peace in that, to find purpose in that. It's a deep comfort to live a life where I am free to be ignorable, free to be ignored, while extending the news of a God who cannot be ignored or forgotten. Now my deepest comfort and satisfaction, I can say confidently, is found making much of him until time covers me up until I'm forgotten. I want to work hard. I want to fight hard, fight with courage, even in obscurity, and then take a seat. His glory, not mine. His fame, not mine. Now, only if I could walk like that every day, (laughs) right? Wake up and operate like that every day. Even better, what if a church What if a church, an entire church, embraced a limited, finite life that just felt a freedom to be ignored, to be forgotten, but lived to declare and demonstrate a gospel? The gospel being the story of God's good news for you and me, mankind, through the person of Jesus who came to live courageously, die passionately, rise again powerfully as he teaches, as he gives his Holy Spirit, As he inhabits his people until one day he comes and collects us and takes us home. This beautiful story. Friends, listen, if this type of talk sounds odd or unhealthy to you, it's because it disagrees with the diet that we've been fed of just being big, be memorable, be yourself, be central, be powerful, be wealthy, be unforgettable. We're groomed to think this way. Being anonymous and obscure, it feels bad. It feels like it's wrong to even talk about. So let's look at this passage today because I think it's going to lead us in a very different direction. This is going to be in Acts 11, 18. If you have your Bible, you're going to want to turn there. Acts 11, and if you didn't bring a Bible, we have them on the, on the table out there. You can grab one. It's free. It's just a gift to you, and we'll have it up on the screen for you today. And just to remind you in the context, because I know we jumped out of the book of Acts last week for Mother's Day Where we're at in the story is Peter had just left Cornelius' house. So he saw a Gentile family radically get saved. And the whole thing was radical. There's dreams, there's visions, there's angels, there's all kinds of amazing things. But then he goes back to report it to everybody, to let them know. When I say everybody, I mean the Jews in Jerusalem. And this is what it says in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord for us. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then did the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. All right. So now it's official. Gentiles are added to the church. It goes on to say, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Okay, pause. Until now individual Gentiles had been added to the church, like Cornelius and some of his family members, but not wholesale. It hadn't happened wholesale yet, right? The focus has always been on the Jews. That's what the churches were doing as they were starting to kind of grow and pop up in different cities. Just like Jesus said in Acts 1, when he said that his message would go where? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are finally at the ends of the earth, okay? The passage goes on to say, but there were some of them, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, these guys, whoever they are, planted a church by accident. They didn't get the memo, Jews only, right? They just started preaching Jesus to anybody, Greeks, Gentiles, And a church just pops up. One scholar I found called them mavericks for the gospel. I think that's pretty cool. They didn't wait for permission, right? They didn't get clearance from the mothership. They didn't wait for training. They didn't go to seminary and get six years of education. They just preached Jesus, and a church was born. Very cool. And I'll bet they made a ton of mistakes. Listen, church planting, let me just say it. It is ridiculously hard, and that is with thousands of churches that have gone before us to do it. That is with books, volumes over shelves full of books, coaches, consultants, networks, brilliant boards with experience coming alongside. When you have all of that, you have about a 15% chance of success. These guys had none of that, and that's not even the most fascinating thing about this part of the passage. What's most fascinating to me is I notice that their names aren't anywhere mentioned, nor will they be. They are anonymous, these church planners. They preached the gospel, died, and were washed away by time. And I love this the fact that this beautiful church that would have a reputation for sending, implanting, and, and sending, implanting and itself was planted by unacclaimed people while God gets the glory. It's fantastic. Listen, never underestimate the power of obscure ministry, ever. What you do in the invisible, what you do in those forgettable moments, oh, it matters. There's a likelihood you're not going to get a book deal if you're sitting here today. A likelihood that you don't have any medals, you won't have just tremendous amount of followers or likes. Never underestimate what God will do in our boringly predictable routine lives. Never underestimate it. And we have the Bible full of obscure ministry that makes a big difference. It's interesting when John writes his gospel, he signs off. The very last verse of the book of John says this in John 21. Stay where you're at. says this in John 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did quite a bit. That was amazing and powerful, and yet was not really acknowledged very many generations after he even did it. You know how I know that? Because we don't know about any of them. We don't know about any of them. In fact, he ministered in the obscure, according to John, the majority of the time. You ever think about that? Let's look at verse 22 in our passage. It says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the church. Okay, very simply, Jerusalem found out, and although they were cool with this theologically, they had already stated so earlier in our passage, They wanted to do some quick quality control just to see if this thing is healthy. So they got to send somebody. How about we send Barnabas? He's perfect for this. And he is perfect. This is a character that's been coming up. He's a prominent character that we have been finding every other chapter or so, this mention of this great guy. He's full of encouragement, full of vision, full of faith. He's heavily invested in the church. He's wise and he doesn't let us down. He shows up and he doesn't critique them. Do you notice that? He's not tempering their momentum by just kind of kicking the door in and saying, hey, You guys are doing this all wrong, man. Have you not read the books? This isn't how you plan a church. You're doing it. He doesn't do any of that. It says he was glad at what he saw and encouraged them all to stay faithful and on point. And more people were added to the church. More people. To the point where he must have thought at some moment, Okay, this is getting a little big for me and the locals. We need help. We need big help. So he goes off to get it. This is what it says as we continue. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, Okay, here's an interesting fact about this, and it's easily missed if we're we're not careful. When Barnabas found Paul, this is in Tarsus, Paul's hometown. When he found him, Paul had been a Christian for about 10 years by this point. Quite a while. Not, Not the same guy that we left a few chapters ago. He's learned a few things. He's picked up a few things. His theology has gotten sharper. He's picked up a limp. He's got some scars, Racked up some stories. He's got a little bit of a resume now. In fact, many speculate that it is this 10 years, maybe eight really, eight to 10 years, this block of time of obscure ministry is where he suffered the afflictions that he talks later on to the church of Corinth about. This is how he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 20, again, stay where you're at, 23. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, And often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers. Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. It goes on and on and on. Now, we don't have record for most of this outside of this little passage. If it wasn't for this, we wouldn't have known any of it ever happened, right? None of this was captured in detail. Maybe a couple things, like one shipwreck, one stoning, which we're going to hear about. But Paul, like Jesus, like the planters at Antioch, did a whole lot in obscurity, did a whole lot anonymously almost so Barnabas scoops him up because he needed a bridge builder who can make disciples in all areas of life who could also go toe to toe with critics and heretics and this guy's gonna he's gonna fit the bill but this is what this would mean for Barnabas he's gonna have to recede and become more obscure you see the theme as you see Acts continue to bloom and continue to unfold as a book for us, one of the things that you will see is Paul is going to become more primary and Barnabas is going to recede in prominence. I love that. This is how the passage finishes for us today as we keep going through it. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is actually the first time we see the word elders in the New Testament. Men who lead the church in plurality. This is actually a form of government that they borrowed from the Jewish synagogue life. We're actually next week going to set in a couple elders, um, just as an example of this, but also because our elder board is growing. And it's going to be exciting for us to do that. Elders, they shoulder a great load. One of them is going to be interacting with Paul and with Barnabas here for sure. But it's difficult because they are of the people, yet they represent the people at the exact same time. Again, more on that next week when we talk about that. That's going to be fun for us. But the main idea for us today is that basic, anonymous mavericks are making disciples in all areas of life, in a very godless city, that a church would be built, one that we will see many missionaries will be sent out from, and that will care for those in distress like we see in our passage today. This is what this means for you. It means you are perfect for God's plan to change the world. You are perfect for God's plan to change the world, especially in obscurity, especially if no one remembers your name. Normal, forgettable, obscure. Your work matters. Your life matters. What you do, what you say, what you do or don't do to disciple people is going to ripple through generations long past the time you hand the baton off and step off the track, long after. This is one of the reasons we called legacy church, legacy church. You know, a legacy is just something that one generation leaves to the next generation. It could be treasure, but it's most often considered a story, a story left from one generation to the next And Probably the most fruitless story, the most ineffective, unhelpful story is the one that is just about you, where you are the center of orbit, but if the story we leave the next generation is God's story, it's his story of what he has done for mankind, then it becomes a treasure, one that can get passed from generation to generation to generation, the story of a God who will never be forgotten by the mouths of people who will. But that beckons you and me into obscure ministry. To do what? To disciple, to invest, to grow, and to mentor, and to give, and to rebuke, and to encourage, and to exhort, to admonish, to lift, to challenge, to persevere, to endure, to start, to fail, to start again to fail again, just to start again, to dig, to dig deeper, to keep going. And just as your personal story might disappear into the dust of history, your investment never will, and never will. You see, my biggest temptation when I read passages like this is that I would read it like a biography full of extraordinary people, not a playbook for ordinary people. I think that's a trap that we get into But this is for you. This story about these people in Antioch, this is a story for you. If you want your life to really matter, you've got to invest in people who likely will forget your name over time, right? Again, it's not likely that anyone in here is gonna have a library named after them, or a cul-de-sac, or a high school. Most of us aren't gonna be inducted into any Hall of Fame Yet, you can live a life that will push to the very edge of forever through the lives of people who won't know anything about you. That's what fascinates me. Personally, not only does this bring me a tremendous amount of freedom, it's where I find the most purpose, it's where I find the most meaning and significance, that this world isn't about me, doesn't revolve around me, therefore need not remember me. I'm free, free to play my part, be courageous, fight, and then disappear one day, and then be next to the saints in heaven, declaring the majesty of the king of the cosmos. So the big question that we have to ask ourselves as we apply a passage like this to our lives is who are we pouring our life into? Where are we doing this? Who are we risking much for? Who are we enduring for? Or is this something that we will just get around to one day when things slow down or when we get more training or when we find the right person what are we waiting for what are we waiting for i think one of the things we do and it's it's understandable is we look for fruitful churches and we don't bear fruit ourselves we look for missional churches or churches on mission but we're not really on mission ourselves because it makes us feel a little bit like we're on great commission ourselves when we're really passengers we're not driving, we're riding alongside. We want to be courageous, so we find courageous tribes to be in. And listen, you can do this, and many people do, but you know ultimately you're unsatisfied with that. Ultimately, it's not bringing the meaning and the significance that you would hope for. Your deepest sense of significance and joy and satisfaction will come from Jesus being adored, especially when you're not. Legacy will always look for ways to lean forward and be on mission and plant churches and missional... If we don't do that, I'm not interested anymore, but my hope is that you will join us in your own rhythms, with your own relationships, in your own space, with your own context, in your own time, with your own imagination, in your own fortitude, that you would do it, that we would do it. You know, what's also noteworthy about this passage It's the first time that they're called Christians. You picked up on that. I mean, it said it. It just told us that. And actually, they're called Christians a couple times after this, but always from outsiders. (laughs) They never called themselves this. It's because their lives had demanded, to a certain degree, a little bit of a nickname. All it means is those belonging to Christ or those in the party of Christ. Some say it renders out little Christs. I think all of those are fitting. One thing I know about the etymology is it's a mongrel name. It's a mutt word. It carries Jewish thought. Messiah is the Jewish thought, the the Christ. But it's Greek language. And and even the suffix, the I-A-N-S, that's Latin. They took all these languages and they squished them together to form the word Christian. And this universality is a little bit of a reminder for you and me of the plaque that sat above the head of Jesus as he was on the cross. This is what John says about it. In John 19, this plaque it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this description for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. This title, Christian, given to a bunch of nonconformists that look like a nonconforming king. Now, 71% of Knoxville, Tennessee calls itself Christian, While 16% will be a part of a service of any kind on the weekend, any shape, any kind, only 16%. And if you were to try to find the percentage of those who are committed partners in a local church, it is far less than 16. What would the world call us today if it had to start all over with a new nickname? If the word Christian was no longer allowed and it had to find another word, what what, would it do? Would it call us those of the party of Jesus? Would it call us little Jesuses? What would it call us? What would our neighbors call us if they couldn't use the word Christian anymore? Last week, Molotov cocktails flew into crisis pregnancy centers and churches simply for being associated with this Messiah, this Christ. Being a Christian will get you protested, doxed, considered a bigot, hater of women and human rights. I suspect if this continues, those 71% that keep checking the Christian box on a survey will find another box to check before long. I'm fine with that. That's fine. Listen, those of the party of Jesus can expect derision and hate. Jesus said so often. He said that this would happen. I'm not an old man, but I've been spit on, cussed out. I've had food thrown at me. I've been physically threatened. I've been laughed at, mocked, and slandered for the title above my head. As Christian and all it did is make that title much more valuable to me. It brought value to it because my king said this would happen. I want to look like him. It's more than a box I want to check. That name has a cost to it. If this passage finds you wondering if your life is going to matter, meaning is found wearing the Christian name and emptying your life into a world that at worst will hate you and at best might forget you. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Because Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, was nailed above his head in mockery, and yet he rules the cosmos. He rules creation. You see, Jesus is extraordinary God. He is God who appeared as an ordinary man who loved and taught ordinary disciples and and brought mercy to ordinary villains and rejects. Then he suffered an extraordinary painful and shameful death to bring life to you and me. And what did it do? It built an extraordinary family full of ordinary people. It's fascinating. And he is still moving through obscure heroes today to disciple people in all areas of life who will do the same. When I read a passage like this, it beckons me to repent. I think it's beckoning all of us to repent to a certain degree for where we decide that we will be passengers in life, Let others do the heavy lifting. I've got nothing to give. I've got nothing to share. I don't want to be responsible for anyone else. Repentance for where we need our glory to shine more than the glory of Jesus, where we hate obscurity so much that we have to make much of ourselves. Repent for where the name Christian even makes us so self-aware because of the derision and mockery that we don't even want to admit it, not in public. So much to repent for. And and listen, we'll get an opportunity to do that here in a moment. But if you're lost and you're here and you are searching, when I say lost, no no one that we would call as a church an unbeliever sees themselves as lost, but you might see yourself as wayward, aimless, bumping into different things, searching, looking, investigating things. Let me just tell you, Jesus is perfect for you. There are heavy demands on us, and yet he meets them all. There are heavy consequences for the sin that we commit, have committed, and will commit. And he takes them. There are extraordinary needs that we wear every day, and he meets those needs. See, if you're looking for something, and Jesus might be it, it's important to hear this thing out of Ecclesiastes. This is what Solomon said in chapter 3. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. It's an ache with no answer. An ache. Eternity is in the heart of man, but he, he can't see, he can't grasp, he can't get his arms around the answer. An ache with no answer. But now we have the answer in Jesus, who is beautiful in his time and beautiful in our time. Let me just say, your ache will never be relieved without Christ. Without Christ, your life will have no meaning, no purpose. It will be, in fact, a wasted life. So I would just submit that you take him seriously. You take his gospel seriously. That you would yield your life over to the king of the cosmos who has loved you so dearly and has come so close. For the rest of us, there's a moment to celebrate. Listen, when life begins, and life hasn't started yet if you're in Christ, this is as bad as it gets. If you're in Christ, this is as bad as it gets. It gets much better. And when life finally begins, we will have a different family tree. Our ancestry.com record will look a little bit different than it does today. Bubbles and lines and blocks drawn from person to person. The people that we've influenced, the people who have influenced us, our disciples. Those that discipled us, the ones we mentored, the ones that mentored us, new brothers and sisters, new mothers and fathers, new mentors, new disciples. Lines going everywhere. No longer obscure, and yet we are carefree to who knows. God is so large, everything else will shrink. Until then, friends, we are free to be forgotten investors into a broken world. Free to be forgotten. Preach the gospel. Die and be forgotten. That's the charge to us today.